You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 383 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With this episode, we're going to shift gears and head back out west of the Appalachians. I know, it's been a while, right? But with this show, we'll start in on another major story arc that will take us right through Chickamauga and Chattanooga. And just FYI, but while we're in the midst of this story arc with the regular episodes, we'll be using the members' episodes over on Patreon to cover other stuff that happened in 1863. For example, with the most recent members' episodes, we covered the Battle of Helena, Arkansas, and the Marmaduke-Walker duel. Other upcoming topics on the members' episodes will be John Hunt Morgan's raid up into Indiana and Ohio, and also the New York City draft riots, both of which happened in July 1863. Here on the regular episodes, as we've seen and will see, the summer of 1863 was a critical time for the armies fighting in the war's three major theaters, that is, along the Mississippi River, and in Tennessee, and then in Virginia. It was an especially critical phase of the Western War, which was, by and large, a contest of widespread offensives covering huge reaches of territory. As you guys already know, the summer of 1863 saw the culmination of Ulysses S. Grant's long struggle to first get at Vicksburg and then second, force the surrender of the Confederate garrison there at that key fortress sitting above the Mississippi. The siege there at Vicksburg ended on July 4th, and when Port Hudson, downriver, also fell a few days later, Abraham Lincoln could say that the Mississippi River, quote, again goes unvexed to the sea. So there were obviously big goings-on there along the Mississippi River during the first part of the summer of 1863. But what about in Tennessee, in the other major theater of the war, west of the Appalachian Mountains? Well, the last time we looked at what was happening in Tennessee was back when we talked about the Battle of Stones River, which took place over New Year's, as the calendar rolled over from 1862 to 1863. Our coverage of Stones River was a while ago, so you guys might 
or might not, remember that just outside the town of Murfreesboro, the Confederates' Army of Tennessee, commanded by Braxton Bragg, squared off against the Federals' Army of the Cumberland, commanded by William Rosecrans, in a big, confused battle that started on the last day of 1862. By the time the fighting was over a few days later, on January 2nd, both sides had suffered heavy casualties. In fact, the losses for both sides were simply staggering, a quarter to nearly a third of those involved in the battle. The Federals lost over 12,900 men out of 41,400 engaged, while the Confederates lost over 11,700 men out of 34,700. And by the way, that massive butcher's bill means that Stones River ranks as the bloodiest battle of the Civil War in proportion to the number of men engaged. The federal commander at Stones River was 43-year-old William Rosecrans, who graduated fifth in the West Point class of 1842. That was good enough upon graduation to earn him a place in the elite Corps of Engineers, but his subsequent Army career had been disappointing. He missed service in the Mexican War, and by 1854 had only just made first lieutenant. Like many a bright Army officer in the 1850s, Rosecrans resigned his commission and turned to civilian pursuits. The outbreak of the Civil War in 1861 found him in Cincinnati, Ohio, trying to make a go of a kerosene refining business. The country needed trained soldiers in 1861, and Rosecrans was soon back in uniform and on the fast track to high rank, first under George McClellan in the area that was to become West Virginia, and later under West Point classmate Ulysses S. Grant in Mississippi. It was in northern Mississippi, on October 3rd and 4th, 1862, that Rosecrans experienced his greatest success up to that point when he commanded the garrison of Corinth when it repulsed a determined assault by a small Confederate army led by Earl Van Dorn. William Rosecrans' victory at Corinth brought him into the limelight at an opportune moment when the authorities in Washington were just then thoroughly fed up with Major General Don Carlos Buell, who, with his Army of the Ohio, had in the campaign just then coming to a close, allowed a Confederate army under Braxton Bragg to go all the way up into central Kentucky and then back to Tennessee, more or less unscathed, despite clashing at the Battle of Perryville on October 8, 1862. Buell's situation had been difficult, but from Washington's perspective, he had appeared sadly lacking in aggressiveness. So before the month of October was out, Buell was sacked and Rosecrans had command of his army, now christened the Army of the Cumberland and operating with Nashville, Tennessee as its base. Lincoln wanted fighting, and he soon got it from his new army commander in Tennessee. Two months after taking command, having heard that the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, had weakened Bragg to reinforce rebel forces in Mississippi, 
Rosecrans advanced against the Confederate army at Murfreesboro, some 35 miles to the southeast. There, however, Bragg attacked first on New Year's Eve day, seizing the initiative, overrunning a good bit of the Army of the Cumberland and coming within a whisker of sending Rosecrans scurrying back to Nashville in disgrace. But several factors combined to save William Rosecrans from that fate. For one thing, Bragg had problems of his own because all was not well in the high command of the Confederate Army. For another, Rosecrans himself rose to the occasion, fearlessly riding his lines under heavy fire, even after his chief of staff and close personal friend, Major Julius Garache, was decapitated by a cannonball a few feet away, splattering Rosecrans with gore. Rosecrans' inspiring leadership steadied his troops in the face of the rebel attacks. A third reason for federal victory at Stones River was the presence of Major General George H. Thomas, Rosecrans' top lieutenant. Three years older than Rosecrans and two years ahead of him at West Point, Thomas was a Virginian who had remained loyal to the Union and who had served with distinction in every battle of what was now the Army of the Cumberland. In fact, Thomas could have had command of the Army that fall when Bragg was moving north and Washington was disappointed with Buell. But Thomas had declined the offer to avoid a change of commanders in the midst of an ongoing campaign. But then when Bragg retreated back to Tennessee and the campaign was over, the offer to Thomas wasn't renewed and the command went to Rosecrans instead. At Stones River, George Thomas was a tower of strength his crucial section of the line held firm and became a key to stopping the rebel assault. His sturdy influence steadied Rosecrans through the ordeal. After Stones River, Rosecrans reorganized his forces, but Thomas's continued presence, commanding the 14th Corps, was one of the Army of the Cumberland's greatest strengths. In actual fact, William Rosecrans had prevailed at Stones River simply by avoiding defeat but nevertheless he still received the credit for a victory at what was really a very tactically indecisive battle. Congratulations flooded into Rosecrans' headquarters, and his stock in Washington soared. However, the praise Rosecrans received had as much to do with politics as it did with anything that happened on the fields outside Murfreesboro. That's because Abraham Lincoln needed a victory. Less than three weeks before Rosecrans and Bragg met along the banks of Stones River, Major General Ambrose Burnside had led the Army of the Potomac to one of the war's most lopsided defeats at Fredericksburg. Lincoln had just given Burnside command in place of McClellan, who, like Buell, hadn't exactly impressed the president with his lack of aggressive instincts. However, that Burnside had now advanced and butchered his army wasn't exactly a sterling endorsement of Lincoln's decision to change commanders. After receiving the grim news from Fredericksburg, the president had declared, quote, If there is a worse place than hell, I am in it. Then, less than a week before Stones River, Grant's campaign against Vicksburg had come to grief when Confederate cavalry under Earl Van Dorn cut his supply lines, 
forcing the retreat of Grant's overland advance into northern Mississippi and leaving his river-based expedition, led by William Tecumseh Sherman, to suffer a bloody repulse at Chickasaw Bayou. All of that's to say that as the calendar rolled over from 1862 to 1863, northern morale needed a victory, and in the absence of evidence to the contrary, Stone's River would do well enough. Months later, Lincoln would write to Rosecrans, saying, quote, I can never forget, whilst I remember anything, that about the end of last year and beginning of this, you gave us a hard-earned victory, which, had there been a defeat instead, the nation could scarcely have lived over. And so William Rosecrans, for a while, was in very good favor with the authorities in Washington. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton told him, quote, There is nothing within my power to grant to yourself or your heroic command that will not be cheerfully given. However, whether because of that extravagant pledge or because of the shock of his close escape from disaster at Stones River or because of what he had seen of the face of battle there, Rosecrans soon made it clear that he and his command would need a great deal more of everything before they would be ready for another such encounter with the enemy. The army would have to move through rough country and so would need plenty of scouting. Then, too, the army would have long supply lines to guard. That meant Rosecrans needed more cavalry and more horses and weapons to mount and equip them. Also, the army might have to maneuver a good distance from the railroad and perhaps be out of touch with it for some time, which meant Rosecrans would need to stockpile mountains of supplies, which would require more wagons to haul them, which in turn would require still more horses and mules. Nor was that all. As the weeks passed, Rosecrans' list of needs grew to include all sorts of supplies, equipment, and reinforcements. Remarkably, the demands were generally met, but as fast as they were, Rosecrans would have new wants. His requests went on at such length and with such frequency that General-in-Chief Henry Halleck grumbled to him about, quote, the enormous expense to the government of your telegrams, more than that of all the other generals in the field. Such incessant demands would have gone far, all by themselves, toward causing Rosecrans' stock in Washington to sink, but they were the least of his problems with the Lincoln administration. You see, for nearly a year, the president had been trying to get his generals in the field to implement his strategy of applying constant, relentless pressure on the Confederacy on all fronts at once. Lincoln's problem had been finding generals who would do so. The only one who had surfaced thus far and the one who would ultimately apply that strategy to achieving federal victory was Grant. In Lincoln's eyes, Buell, along with McClellan, had been the worst offenders in failing to apply such pressure against the enemy. What Lincoln wanted, and Stanton and Halleck wanted on his behalf, was the kind of hard-driving, tenacious style of warfare that Grant himself later summed up as, quote, 
Get at the enemy as quick as you can. Hit him as hard as you can. And keep moving on. The trouble with Rosecrans, as far as Lincoln was concerned, was that he was not Grant. As weeks stretched into months after the Battle of Stones River and Rosecrans made no forward movement, the authorities in Washington became increasingly impatient. Halleck and Stanton tried bluster and flattery and even outright nagging, but couldn't get any results. Rosecrans responded with excuses and additional requests for more of everything. On March 1st, Halleck telegraphed, quote, There is a vacant major generalcy in the regular army, and I am authorized to say that it will be given to the general in the field who first wins an important and decisive victory, end quote. Rosecrans professed to, quote, unquote, feel degraded at the idea of, quote, such auctioneering of honor, end quote and he made it clear that he was far above the quest for battlefield promotion. He was not, however, above requesting of Stanton that his, Rosecrans, commission as Major General of Volunteers be backdated so that he could outrank Grant. Well, Lincoln himself responded, and though his language was, as it nearly always was, gentle and soothing, His point was that the matter of relative rank between two generals in different departments was irrelevant, and would Rosecrans please get on with the war? But Rosecrans would not get on with fighting the war, at least not for a considerable length of time. As spring 1863 arrived, and with it the opening of major campaigns in both Mississippi and Virginia, Rosecrans' inactivity in Tennessee became still more irritating to the Lincoln administration. The urgings for action from Washington became more insistent, but remained futile. When Grant successfully trapped John C. Pemberton's Confederate army in the fortifications of Vicksburg, Bragg was able to detach 10,000 men to go to Mississippi to join a force commanded by Joseph E. Johnston. The authorities in Richmond hoped Johnston would attack Grant and break the siege of Vicksburg. Word of this transfer of rebel troops from Tennessee to Mississippi was not well received in Washington, of course. But when Halleck confronted Rosecrans with this obvious negative consequence of his inactivity, Rosecrans replied that he in fact viewed his idleness as good strategy, since if he had already attacked Bragg in Tennessee, that might have resulted in Bragg taking his entire army to join up with Johnston in Mississippi, which would have put Grant in an even worse position at Vicksburg. If such creative reasoning didn't impress the authorities in Washington, Rosecrans also added that since federal armies were engaged in mighty struggles with the enemy in Mississippi and Virginia, It was probably best that his force in Tennessee remain idle and await the outcomes of those other campaigns. (laughs) Okay. And so William Rosecrans planned and prepared and accumulated supplies, while Abraham Lincoln would have been forgiven if he reflected that while he had appointed Rosecrans in October 1862, hoping to find someone who would make war the way Grant was even now doing, What the president seemed to have got instead was merely another Buell. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. If Lincoln had his command problems in the volunteer state that spring of 1863, so did Jefferson Davis. Facing Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland was the Confederate's Army of Tennessee. Its commander was 46-year-old Braxton Bragg, a North Carolina native and member of the West Point class of 1837. He had gone to war in Mexico nine years later as a captain commanding a battery of artillery, and at Buena Vista had won nationwide fame when his guns stopped a Mexican attack. His performance had been comparable to the best of those many Mexican War junior officers who were destined for larger responsibility in the Civil War. During the 1850s, Bragg followed the example of many brother officers and left the Army for civilian pursuits. In his case, he married a Louisiana heiress and settled down to take up the life of a wealthy Southern planter. The secession crisis brought him back into uniform, this time a Confederate one. His first post in Confederate service was Pensacola, Florida, during the days when it appeared that the shooting war might begin there instead of Charleston, South Carolina. It didn't, of course, but at Pensacola, Bragg demonstrated himself to be a skillful organizer and a rigorous trainer. When things turned sour for the Confederacy in Tennessee in February 1862, Richmond could no longer afford to keep able commanders and large garrisons in such places as Pensacola, and so Bragg was sent to Corinth, Mississippi, to join the rebel army with which Albert Sidney Johnston hoped to turn the tide in the West. Albert Sidney Johnston made his bid to turn the tide at Shiloh, and there he died. 
In that battle, Bragg gained further favorable notice, and although his tactics weren't especially imaginative, they were no worse than anyone else's. Within a few months, Bragg found himself promoted to full general and elevated to command of the main Confederate army in the West, in place of PGT Beauregard. Beauregard had succeeded Albert Sidney Johnston, but then left the army without permission because of sickness. Beauregard and Jefferson Davis weren't on the best of terms to begin with, and when Davis learned of the circumstances of Beauregard's absence, the exasperated Confederate president relieved him and appointed Bragg to replace him. Bragg began his tenure auspiciously, taking advantage of the uninspired strategy of Federal Generals Halleck and Buell to swing his rebel army all the way up into Kentucky, threatening Louisville and Cincinnati, giving Kentuckians the opportunity to rally to the Confederacy, and seemingly reversing the course of the war in the West. But then everything went wrong for Bragg. Kirby Smith, an independent commander whom Jefferson Davis declined to place under Bragg's authority, failed to cooperate with Bragg and thus hamstrung the campaign. Leonidas Polk, a subordinate general who actually was under Bragg's direct authority, refused to carry out a key order and thus further spoiled Bragg's plans. Polk was a member of the West Point class of 1827. However, upon graduation, he had never actually served a day as an army officer, but instead entered the Episcopal priesthood, in which career he rose to the rank of bishop. He might have sat out the war in his Louisiana diocese, but Leonidas Polk did not do that, because he was ambitious, persuasive, considered himself an expert on military matters, and he had an old West Point buddy named Jefferson Davis. Incredibly, the Confederate president saw fit to appoint Polk a major general direct from civilian life. Thus far in the war, Polk's headstrong incompetence had already cost the Confederacy, and before the Kentucky campaign, Bragg had hinted that the bishop general needed to go, but Davis refused. But for the outcome of the Kentucky campaign, worse than Polk's disobedience, was the decision of the Kentuckians themselves. You see, although the exploits of such colorful Confederate cavalry raiders like John Hunt Morgan might excite admiration in some quarters of the bluegrass, in reality the state's populace was predominantly unionist. Those who did lean toward the Confederacy, and weren't already in gray or butternut uniforms, were reluctant to take their stand until they could see with more certainty which way the wind was blowing. As a result, during his army's strike up into the Bluegrass State, recruits were few, and Bragg was left with wagon loads of extra muskets, which had been brought along to arm the hordes of Kentuckians he had been assured would flock to join his ranks. That so few men joined Bragg's army was significant, because one of the major premises of the entire campaign was that large numbers of Kentuckians would rise up to help rid their state of federal troops. That was precisely the expectation held out to Bragg by Morgan and other Kentucky officers in the army, 
but it had proven to be mere wishful thinking. Bragg felt he had been seriously misled and was bitter about it, leading to strained relations between himself and the Kentucky officers, men such as John C. Breckinridge, Simon Bolivar Buckner, and William Preston. After the Battle of Perryville, if the events of October 1862 marked the end for Federal Commander Don Carlos Buell in Kentucky, they were merely the beginnings of sorrows and tribulations on the Confederate side for Braxton Bragg and the Army of Tennessee. The Kentuckians in the Army reciprocated Bragg's bitterness over the failure of the recent campaign, and in doing so, they were joined by generals whose own roles in the campaign had been less than stellar, notably Kirby Smith and Leonidas Polk. The bishop general, who was second in rank to Bragg in the army, and who both resented Bragg's authority and coveted his position, began to use his considerable charm and the political skills he had gained working his way up the Episcopal Church ladder to turn the army's other officers against Bragg. One of Polk's first converts was his fellow corps commander, William Hardy. Hardy had a distinguished career in the old army behind him, including service in the Mexican War and a stint as commander of cadets at West Point. He was also the author of the U.S. Army's Standard Manual on Tactics. Those qualifications gave him considerable respect and influence with the junior officers of his corps, for whom he held regular classes of instruction. Henceforth, those classes would subtly be aimed at demonstrating the incompetence of the Army's commanding general. Others despised Bragg as well. Though a pre-war opponent of Jefferson Davis, when Davis was Secretary of War and Bragg was a U.S. Army officer, Bragg had nevertheless, by this time in the Civil War, come to be viewed as a protege of the Confederate president. It was a dubious distinction, since with it came the hatred of all Davis's foes in politics and the Southern press. Of even more importance within the Army was Bragg's strict discipline. One behavior that Bragg was particularly keen on cracking down on was drunkenness among the officers. Hard-drinking generals like Frank Cheatham and John C. Breckinridge took exception to this. Others, such as John McCown, were incompetent and knew that Bragg thought so. The result of all of that was a seething unrest among the officer corps of the Army of Tennessee, and it would prove to be a toxic brew fueled by hatred and mistrust that would poison the Army's operations. That toxicity was an ingredient of the Confederate failure at Stones River. McCown blundered, Breckinridge's performance was open to question, and Cheatham was apparently so drunk he fell off his horse. On the whole, the rebel army's command system was creaky and stiff-jointed. Despite that, at Stones River, Bragg nevertheless managed to handle Rosecrans about as roughly on the first day of the battle as Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson would handle Joe Hooker at Chancellorsville four months in the future. 
The difference was that Hooker would lose his nerve and retreat. But Rosecrans first held his ground and then took up a position that gave him an advantage over Bragg. Braxton Bragg beat the Federals on the first day of the Battle of Stones River, but was unfortunate in facing an opponent in William Rosecrans, who wouldn't admit he was defeated and retreat. So at the urging of his generals, Bragg was the one who reluctantly withdrew his army from the battlefield three days later, going back about 35 miles to the vicinity of Tullahoma. The bright hopes of a rebel victory that had blazed up with the first day's success at Stones River now faded into the cold, dull realization of defeat, and many a Confederate was heartsick at that dramatic and unexpected turn of events. Such intense disappointment naturally sought a scapegoat, and the natural one was Bragg, who now became the target of twice as much venom as before. Polk, unbeknownst to Bragg, stepped up his lobbying with Jefferson Davis to have Bragg removed from command. Also among the many newspaper articles in the Southern press criticizing him, some obviously had been written with the help of sources inside the army and claimed that Bragg had managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of certain victory when he retreated against the advice of all his generals. Stung by this criticism and these falsehoods, Bragg then did something very foolish. He wrote a communication to his generals, mentioning his fears that Richmond was about to sack him, asking them if they had advised him to retreat at Stones River, and adding, quote, I shall step down without regret if I find I have lost the good opinion of my generals, upon whom I have ever relied as upon a foundation of rock. Apparently, Bragg had no idea how bad things had gotten among the upper ranks of the army, or surely he would never have sent out such a communication. At any rate, with six of his strongest supporters in the officer corps then absent with wounds or on leave, the result was that most of the generals who replied admitted that they had counseled him to retreat, but urged Bragg to resign anyway. Word of this remarkable exchange got back to Richmond, where Jefferson Davis commented, quote, Why General Bragg should have selected that tribunal and have invited its judgments upon him is to me unexplained. End quote. Davis then ordered Bragg's immediate superior, Joseph E. Johnston, the overall Confederate commander in the Western Theater, to go to Tullahoma and look into the matter. Johnston, by his mere presence at Tullahoma, would be in immediate command of the Army of Tennessee, and then Bragg could be eased out from under him. Well, that may have been how Jefferson Davis planned it, but as on many another occasion in the war, the Confederate president hadn't reckoned with the contrary nature of Joe Johnston. For one thing, Johnston seems not to have read his copy of the script and thus sent Richmond a glowing report from Tullahoma about the Army's good condition. True, he admitted, some of the generals, particularly those who had performed poorly, were disgruntled, but morale among the rank and file seemed as high as ever. Also, overall, the Army's discipline, training, and equipment were good. 
Therefore, Johnston concluded, Bragg should remain in command. When Davis made his wishes regarding the matter more plain, Johnston insisted there was no reason to replace Bragg, and that if Bragg were removed, then he, Johnston, would not take the job of commanding the Army of Tennessee. You see, apparently, after complaining to anyone who would listen for several months about how much he disliked his current supervisory role and how what he really wanted was to lead an army in the field, Joe Johnston wouldn't take command of one now because he was worried it would look like he had conspired against Bragg in order to get it. Jefferson Davis now sent a direct order to Johnston that Bragg be told to report to Richmond. Johnston asked that a copy be sent to Bragg. It was, but Johnston asked that its execution be delayed so that Bragg could remain with his wife, who was seriously ill. Yeah, we know. This is turning into quite the ridiculous circus, right? But it gets worse, because by early April, by the time Elise Bragg was better, Johnston himself was too ill to command an army in the field so the order for Bragg to report to Richmond was delayed still further. Then, before Johnston had fully recovered, disaster struck in Mississippi in the form of Grant's spring campaign against Vicksburg. Since Mississippi was the other half of Johnston's supervisory command, Jefferson Davis ordered him to go there and see what he could do. Thus, Joe Johnston departed the scene and would play no further role in the struggle for Tennessee. Therefore, by default, and without the confidence of either his top subordinates or his commander-in-chief, Braxton Bragg remained in command of the Army of Tennessee. That meant it was to him who would fall the task of stopping Rosecrans when that officer finally felt himself to be ready and advanced. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Stones River and Tullahoma Campaigns by Christopher L. Kolakowski. Yes, this is a repeat recommendation, but it's been a while, and with coverage of both Stones River and Tullahoma, we figured you guys would let us get away with running it by you again. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations, even ones we use twice, if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then, as always, we want to give a big thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. So thanks to William D., Kevin C., Phil H., Lynn B., David B., Hayden M., and Brendan B. Thanks also to Stephen P., Elliot R., and Stephen V. for their donations. And then just a reminder as we wrap up this episode that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. 
Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.